0: Ladies and gentlemen, damas y caballeros, welcome to Siempre Pa'lante. Pa'lante.
1: Siempre Pa'lante.
0: Bienvenido mi gente to season two of Siempre Pa'lante, Always Forward. I'm your host, Tirado Luis Alvarez. Gracias for listening. In this episode, our guest has dedicated his life to music for more than 50 years. He is a self-taught musician who has earned every accolade that has come his way. From El Barrio en Nueva York to entertaining millions of fans around the world, please welcome the King of Latin soul, Joe Batan. So we're gonna get into the carne con papas, the meat and potatoes. For all the listeners out there, who is Joe Batan?
1: <laughs> Joe Batan is an ordinary guy. That's been my uh, moniker for years. When I recorded that song, I finally realized that that was really me. I've gone to concerts, I've joked and said to the audience, gee, you know, the guy wouldn't let me in. I said, what do you mean? He said, who are you? I said, I'm Joe Batan. I'm going to play here. He said, get out of here, brother. You ain't no Joe Bertan. I said, what do you mean? He said, Joe Battan don't ride no beat up car like you came in here. I said, wait a minute. I'm an ordinary guy. <laughs> and then he let me in. But uh, people get a kick out of that when I tell that story. I've been the same for the last 53 years. I'm always the first one on stage, the last one to leave. I speak to everybody because I love this art. I love that God gave me a chance. To do something with my life. And now I'm trying to leave the world. I'm really in the spirit now. So I guess it took a long time for me to find my avenue. Thank God I am able to find and search this new way of being. He's had his hand on me all my life, all through my negative times, my ups and downs. And yes, he's blessed me. And now I want to impart his goodness to the world. Amen.
0: Thank you for sharing that. What I really love about your story and a lot of people love about your story is those humble beginnings. Can you share a little bit about that, about mommy, papi?
1: <laughs> I grew up in Spanish Harlem and barrio. You know, my father's Filipino. My mother's African-American from Newport News. So I grew up in el barrio. So I had to learn Spanish. Everything I did was self-taught from playing the piano to learning the language to just knowing the streets. Actually, I just finished writing my memoirs, and it's called Streetology. It's something that you don't learn in Oxford, you don't learn in Cambridge. It's a sixth sense that you get from mother with. It's how to survive, and that's what I did, not knowing that there was something more important at the end of the road than me obtaining success. I've learned that Don't keep reaching for things that are not in your grasp. Work with what you have. Count your blessings. So that's more important. I remember now, after all of these years, and I'm almost going to be 80, I don't own anything. Everything belongs to the big boss. I no longer want to attain a new car, new house, pocket full of money. Of course, these things are important in life. But spiritually, it's nothing because you take nothing with you. You leave a legacy and you hope that when judgment time comes around, well, what did you do with your life, Jobatan? I mean, what did you really do? Was it all about you? Did you ever give time to think about somebody else or your loved ones or stuff like that? And so that's the state of my mind now. I thank God that I'm here. A lot of people that grew up with me and went through life with me are gone. You know, I don't know if they had the chance to realize what was in store for them, but I pray that they do. So all I wanna do is impart goodness to the world and check myself out.
0: <laughs> in El Barrio, you talked about growing up in El Barrio, Spanish Harlem. Take us through that experience and how the culture, the Latino culture was there and how they embraced you.
1: Well, you know, growing up, I was a minority. I mean, Rama said that from the TNT. He said, Joe, you were a minority because you had to go through a culture and environment that was foreign to you. So I was accepted when I was four years old and my mother and father had me on his shoulders and we ran into the barrio from 117th Street to 104th. There were three kids on a stoop. The patoros and they welcomed me. They said, hey, welcome to the neighborhood. And I guess everybody took it for granted that I was Latino, you know? I blended in. But nevertheless, what it did was I grew up with Latinos and in the barrio we didn't have much but we enjoyed what we had and we worked and played together and I was able to dream you know like so many kids don't get a chance to dream they don't know what love is because of the home setting and I realized that thank god that when I went to the third grade there was a kind teacher when I was crying in the kindergarten and she said but then, why what's wrong I said nothing you know but i was lonely i never been away from home and she said don't worry i'm here i'll take care of you. and it was that sign of affection that lasted through my life i witnessed love and caring but imagine those so many youngsters that grow up and never hear the word love in their household so all they have is what comes to them as negative now i work everybody knows that i worked in spotford for 25 years I worked with troubled kids all my life. And some of the stories I heard were similar to mine. And I was able to give back to those kids because of my experience. And never acknowledging who I was until later on the kids found out. And then they would beg me to come to work. You know, they would find my number and call me at home. I wasn't doing music. I'd fell out of music. And I had to find a way to survive. I took a job. And God must have known that. I said, what can I do? I'm not trained for anything. But to be a mentor to the youth, that was perfect because I was one of those kids. I like to think that I gave back to a lot of those kids. I've seen grown men approach me when I'm playing and they said, hi, Joe. I said, hi. He said, you don't remember me? I said, no. Who she says, I'm little Ron that you had in Spofford. get out of here. He says, man, I did what you did because we live by a motto. Spirit, health, and knowledge. Spirit, you must believe in something. Knowledge, you can't let a day go by without learning something new and help. You got to take care of your body. Those ingredients I instilled in those kids while they were locked up. I said, you can have success if you do this. And a lot of them believed in me. I ran my dormitory with the youngsters the way no one else could have. I had them marching in hallways, doing things or step things that like they do in college and we run up to the seventh floor. We never took the elevator. I mean, the things that installed in them, they would answer, how are you living? He said three notches above the rest. And that's how I like to think that those kids grew up and I gave them something. I gave them such an energy and hope that there was hope for them because of me, that I went through the same thing. And then here I was mentoring to them. So life is not through after you get incarcerated or you find your Waterloo and something happens in your life. You can always turn it around with the help of the big boss.
0: And that, I feel, started very early. You know, mommy, papi, there were some things that you saw and you took it, ran with it, but you maybe didn't know at the time because you're young, but you absorbed mm-hmm. it. Can you share some of those things now that you realize yeah. it much later in life with that you would like to share?
1: In the third grade, I had a teacher named Miss Green. And of course, at that time, we thought teachers and people of authority were gods growing up. You know, we didn't know any better. And somehow I must have talked about attorney classroom, nothing criminal. And yet this teacher smacked me in my face. I was appalled at it. But of course, you couldn't talk back to teachers. And I went home. Now, you have to understand, my mother was four feet nine. She must have weighed 95 pounds wet. And. I went in and told Ma, this teacher smacked me in my face. She jumped up immediately. You got to imagine my mother. Everybody knew my mother by Mamie. Grabbed me by the hand and dragged me 100 feet to that school, ran through the exit door, past the principal's office, and knocked on that classroom door. And she said, excuse me. And the lady came out looking at this diminutive little lady. And she said, did you smack my son? She said, yeah, he was talking. She said, stop right there. Don't you ever touch my son. I do that. If something is possibly wrong with him, tell me. And I walked out there. That teacher never talked to me the rest of the year. And what I learned from that was, wow, my mother was a warrior. She defended me when you're right. And I took that lesson with me all through my life. And I never forgot that story, you know, how my mother defended me. And I do the same thing with my kids, my grandkids. It's got to the point that when I go to the school, everybody calls me Mr. Moms. They don't see the mom, they see me. And I've been a taxi driver for 50 years, taking kids and grandkids to school back and forth. I knew all of their idiosyncrasies. I've been with youth a great part of my life. And I think that's what has kept me young all my life. I refuse to be the old man walking down the street, you know, because I hang around with youth, and new ideas. I enjoy it.
0: Big shout out to Mami. So cultural traditions in La Familia are very important. Those are other seeds that get planted that guide us throughout our life. And whether we know it or not, we start doing things similar to what our parents did because it's a tradition. What were some of the really cool traditions growing up in your household?
1: My father was a very quiet person. He was a seasonal worker, so he worked away six months and he was home six months. He was a cook, chef cook. And every time that I can remember when I was doing something special, or not even special, He was there in a corner watching me. And everybody in the neighborhood knew. They knew he was Filipino with chinky eyes, jet black hair. But they knew that was my father with his hat. He said, there goes your dad. He's looking at you. Whether I was playing basketball, I had a basketball game, whether I was in a track meet, he was there. When he ran around with me in the reservoir, when we were trying to get into the Olympics when I was young, he was always there. And he loved his kids. And I try to give that same love to my offspring and my grandkids growing up. We had a tradition of running in our family. So as soon as a kid was old enough to walk, we sent him out to the track to run cross country. Because I knew that that running was a foundation to their life and anything else physical that they would do. And once you are physically adapt to do a lot of things, a lot of the worries and things that you can't do, are diminished, right? It gives you a better chance in life. So if you start this early, you have less headaches when you get older. A lot of things I wish I had started earlier, but there was a tradition, just like you saw in The Godfather, don't go against the family, right? Stay together with your family and the family. You know what I mean? Sometimes you get heated arguments. You don't want that. But as far as being bonded, very important. What more can I say? traditions, I didn't really have many. I followed a lot of things what other people did. And I guess I made up my own traditions. Early on, it was a Machiavelli theory. By any means necessary, of course, I found out that I got a lot of negativity doing that. But now, I use it in a positive way. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line. Don't deviate because it takes too long and life is short. And I found out a lot of my friends that were much more talented than me are still trying to achieve their success only because they deviated from that straight line where I took the shortcut and went straight through. I didn't have time to waste to be a perfectionist, right? And yet it worked for me. So I'm known as a street singer. As imperfect as it is, people say, I could do that. But the only difference is Joe Batan did it. (laughs) A lot of people didn't do it, but at least I bring this to the table and people can appreciate it because they see themselves in me.
0: You talk about the straight line.
1: Yeah, at first,
0: the trajectory early on, you had some run ins, you're young. There was some things you got mixed up with, but you needed that to take you where you needed to go. Right. I mean, we go back to God. Right. There was a purpose and there was always a path here we are having this conversation, right? And I'm sure you've shared the story growing up. But to me, what's interesting is how you took that and said, wait a second.
1: Well, you know, my story is a Cinderella story. There's no doubt about it. I try to capture it in my memoirs. And every time somebody read it, it said, Joe, you left out this. Joe, you left out this. There's no way I could write it. You know, a lot of things I didn't even want to remember that I was negative and uh my road was really rough up and down. And now that I found out one of the greatest words in the English dictionary is peace. And that's what the Lord meant. I give you peace. We took that for granted when we heard that as kids, but peace can allow you so much that you never envisioned in your life. And that's what I'm experiencing now is the peace. Even though I'm busy, Sometimes I stop myself and reflect, whoa, stop here. What are you doing, man? You after this? Come on, stop. He said, there's something more important. So you made a couple of dollars. Come on, what are you doing? You know, stop. And I'm glad that I got that little ring that rings in my head every time that I get above myself. And I get into that vanity and that worldly feeling. So I want to relinquish that because it's a tough battle. It's very hard to understand the mysteries that's where my mind is right now. I'm not 22 anymore. You know, I can't do a lot of the things that I did back then, but I can adjust. I can adjust. Nothing is promised. When I think about how many times I met death. I've had three heart attacks, I beat cancer, I had C. Oh my God, I can name all the things. And here I am talking to you, thinking that I'm 22 years old. <laughs> the grandkids think they I can do anything, you know, but the fact is, I really am slowing down, but I don't have any time to slow down. And I'm wondering, I said, gee, man, can I bluff this thing for another 10 years? You know, I don't know. It's in God's hand.
0: (laughs) Did you know, Sabiasque, Jobatan didn't coin the phrase Latin soul. The phrase was used in the early 60s to late 50s with La Lupe and Tito Puente. He actually created the music as it should have sounded. By merging Latin music with R&B tunes in the late 60s, Latin soul was officially born by the creator, Joe Batan. Now back to the show. I've devoured any article I can on you and The Pioneers because I have a passion for that. I admire that because you've taken nothing into something and that's something even bigger. And at 15, you're in front of the judge, right? So what went through your mind in that moment?
1: Yeah, well, look, I had the rosary in my hands. And, the, you know, the lawyer, my mother scrubbed floors to pay for him. And my godfather, who's helping out, to get this boy off. He said, oh, yeah, I'm going to get a probation. Didn't happen. When that judge said in definite five years, my heart dropped to the floor. I couldn't believe that I was going to be sent away. And when I got through the bullpen and I walked in, I asked the man, hey, what did he say? He said, well, you got a zip five years in your reformatory. And I said, wow, when can I come home? He said, it's up to you. So I was determined to come out in one day. Of course it didn't happen. You know, It wasn't one day you had to go through the whole system. What I learned is when I got there one day while I was incarcerated, After I violated parole and was sent back, I was working in the kitchen, and I wanted to go outside into the yard to play, and I was restricted because I had hurt my ankle. I went outside anyway, and the guard saw this, and he caught me. Instead of going upside my head, he said, didn't I tell you not to go outside there? I was lost for words. He said, stand over there in the corner, face the wall, but he didn't touch me. But normally they would bang you on the head, right? So I said, wow, I'm gonna show this guy that I'm a real man. I stood at that wall, facing that wall, at attention. I did not bend my knees for almost 12 hours. And the lesson that I learned in life, they said, I'm not gonna beg for mercy. I'm gonna stand here wreck, not even blink, right? And I did it. I watched breakfast come through. I watched lunch and I watched dinner. And after it was time to go, he came up to me and said, all right, get out of here. When I walked out, I was so relieved that I had done this. And I said to myself, I could do anything. I said, if I did that, and I remember that, right? I said, I could do anything. It's just like when I go to church and I kneel down. My butt is never on the chair. I kneel erect. That's the least that I could do. And I learned that discipline when I was 16. And to this day, I'll always remember how I stood there at attention, not bending my knees, not moving my hands. And if you think that's not difficult, try it one day. You just got to move. And I did that for that long. I said after that, I knew I could do anything in life. And that's how I approached music, without knowing anything. I mean, the story goes and people know. I went to see a fellow band leader that had dated in the neighborhood. And he was appalled that I was there, you know, because I was a teacher there from the neighborhood here. Yeah. And he said, look, this is a private rehearsal. They don't want you. And, of course, you know, excuse my language, uh, at that time, I said, hey, you can't talk to me like that, you know, oh, punch them in the nose or whatever. But, nevertheless, I walked out. And, of course, the two guys that brought me there, they said, Joe is sorry. We didn't know he was like that. You could do something. I said, yeah, I'm going to get a band and I'm going to show him. Not knowing anything, I thought it would take me 10 years. The Cinderella stories that I went out and got young kids, 12, 13 years old, took them to the center and rehearsed for six months and we were making records. So (laughs) I never looked back.
0: (laughs) That story I've heard, it's amazing. And so I'm going to throw some things at you. The epiphany with the triad and the C major. So share a little bit about that.
1: Going at the piano, I didn't know what to do. I would just bang the piano and the guys, you know, we'd get high and go in there. And I discovered the triad on the piano just by separating my fingers between the white keys. And I've always sang, so I had a great ear. And I said, wow, that sounds like harmony. It was a C major. Right? I didn't know a C C major back then. You know, I learned that when I went back to Caxaca and took theory. And then I took it up a progression, and that was a D minor. And I said, whoa, this is starting to sound like a song. And then I took it up another step, and that was the E, D minor. And then I took it back down to the D minor, and I said, whoa, I can sing a song. And I sang my first song. I think I wrote it for Ralphie Pagano, It Was Just One of Your Kisses. And I would sing this song over and over in the auditorium. People would come in to hear me sing. And then I was starting to think, wow, these people really think I can play the piano. I just kept fiddling with it. I kept learning. I watched people play and I imitated them. I had a great knack for memory because most of my early musical experiences were by memory. And everybody that played with me had to have a good memory or they couldn't play. So there was nothing on paper. That came much later when I had all music transposed into charts. But back then, for the first 20 years, I did everything by memory. A lot of guys couldn't believe it. Even Joe Cuba asked one of the guys in the band, he says, oh, how did you guys do that Chef by Isaac Hayes? He said, we just... Picked it up and did it right there in the studio. He said, get out of here, man. Where's the charts? Tito Puente kept asking me every time I ran in him. Hey, Joe, I want to do that song. Give me the charts. Okay, Tito, I'll give it to you. And I kept hiding from him because there were no charts. <laughs> I didn't know how to write a chart. I didn't know how to tell people, put hey, I ain't got no charts, man. You keep asking me for the song. That's water under the bridge. Yeah, I guess I was blessed.
0: <laughs> the one thing that I love about the stories you share, the St. Cecilia's Church. Take us through that. That's a really
1: good one. I made a key somehow. I knew the receptionist and I used to use the platform and I made a key and it led to the bottom of the church where I knew there was a piano. I couldn't afford a piano and it was my passion. Anywhere I could see a piano to touch it. And I knew that there was a place in there I could go. So I went into there to the bottom floor, and I played this piano. You know, I kept practicing, and then all of a sudden the guys would come following me in there, and we were partying. You know, we were up to no good, but nevertheless, I started to practice. And one night, playing too late, the priest came down and said, Hey, what are you guys doing? I said, Hey, Father, we didn't take anything. We hauled off, but and we ran out of there, and I never returned again. But the story goes that. I never knew that St. Cecilia's was the patron saint of music until now. (laughs) And that is so funny that when we did the documentary, I said, wow, isn't that ironic that after all of these years, I've returned to St. Cecilia's. You can find me there every Sunday at mass. And the father has asked me, (laughs) old people, to help with the parish of saying I've sang for almost every denomination you can think of, you know, when they want to hear the Lord's Prayer, who has ironically become one of my most popular songs that I saw here. Who would have known 40 some years ago when I composed this song that this would happen to me? And the stories that I get is, Joe, you don't know how many lives you have touched with that song. And now it comes back to me how I told that story when I was writing the music, the Bible fell off piano. I mean, that's a good story. And I said, gee, I don't have to compose any words. It's right there. And for some reason, the our father, the Lord's prayer fit perfectly into that music. And I've been singing it for the last 22 years. When I first started, I guess I was ashamed to sing it. It, what people would think, you know, but now I can't leave a concert without, Doing it all over the world, even if they don't understand English. I've done it in Japan, Shanghai, Australia, France, Germany, you name it. And I think, wow, that was embedded in my head and I didn't even know. St. Cecilia's. And then
0: the story of you go in there with the youth, you see the youth. That's another good one. St. Cecilia has many
1: different stories. Yeah. And you know what's so funny is that I start to cry because I said, Look at this. I'm actually on the altar. I sang for Mother's Day, the Lord's Prayer and my cloud. It's unheard of that this has been done in St. Cecilia's. You know, I said, this guy, me, there's a little people from my body that grew up, in, and I'm here on church singing to the parishioners, you know, and then to get them to come to me that they didn't know who I was and then some that did know me were so grateful that I said, wow. Big boss is allowing me to impart his goodness to the world. So I start crying. I'm a very sentimental guy. St. <laughs> Cecilia's, to me,
0: probably one of the greatest stories you've told, and it defines uh-huh. the trajectory. We talk about the straight line because I feel when you came in, you encountered the youth, and you're like, hey, what's going on here? you know, with the swagger, and then <laughs> you take that knife, you put it in the grand piano, it's like, and I did a little research, the piano is a Marshall and Wendell piano, but I feel that's when things really, okay, now I need a band, so boom, and you started bringing people together, but they needed a piano player.
1: Right, yeah. It was so funny, I had tried every combination possible. Girls, uh, You name it. I was desperate to get anybody to play. And of course, because of my reputation, a lot of people shunned me at that time. You know, they said, I ain't going to play with that he will beat me up or something like that because I was such a disciplinarian because I knew that if I didn't instill that discipline, I didn't have a chance because what I lacked in theory and education as a true musician, I had with discipline. Now, you got to understand, Joe Batan was never a musician. I started out as a band leader, and that's all I've ever been all my life. So I started at the top, right? I never played for anybody. I only played for Joe Batan. And then I never sang other people's songs until later because I wrote my own songs. And that's what has endeared me to my fans because those lyrics have sustained. The period. Who would have thought that a kid in California had one of my songs tattooed on their legs all these years? And why? It was a whole different culture. To see that, I asked a question on the West Coast. They said, Joe, the raza, right? We are very loyal with our music. I said, yeah? He said, we pass it down. He said, that's why you have fans that are eight years old, 10 years old, 20, 30, 40, 50, even 90 years old. Because your music has been passed on, even when we didn't know who the heck you were. And I said, that was amazing. I said, wow. These Chicanos man really got it together. I said, can I be a Chicano? They said, hell no. You just be yourself, you know. (laughs) And then, but just recently. They honored me as an honorary Chicano on the West Coast. (laughs) Something
0: that I found very interesting was the ballads and the uptemple songs. You had the Da Vinci Code, my friend. You knew before. A lot of people knew. Can you share a little bit about that? Because the ballad, how you switched the songs.
1: You got to understand my thinking. I was a great innovator when it came to marketing and the idea. I had that above everyone else. I like to think, Uh, not the talent, but I knew direction. And I knew that Joe Batan had to be unique because there was just too many competition out there. How the heck was I going to go up against James Brown, Smokey Robertson, Frankie Lyman, the Teenagers, Gershman, Cole Porter, you name it, Judy Gollum, you name it, I couldn't. I said, what does Joe Batan do? You do something unique. You're not the greatest singer in the world, but then you got to understand my early influences were the Anglo artists. was Frank Sinatra, Perry Como, Judy Garland. We didn't have the Night King Coles or the Sammy Davis's until later on. You have to understand Latino music was at the end of the dial. Black music was on the other end of the dial. All you had was Anglo music and stuff in the middle. So that's how you were influenced. We didn't even have Black history, Latino history back then. Our heroes were George Washington, Roosevelt, stuff like that. We knew nothing about the Peanuts and George Washington. We didn't know anything about the so i We didn't know anything about that until later on, until our minds started to open up. So when I started to write, I wrote in a way of my thinking. I tried to stay away from the word love. Because everybody uses the word love in their songs. So I try to show how I could say I love you in different ways. Right? So that was one part. Then the other thing is I knew nothing about copywriting and about protecting your material. So I would change and purposely do modulations in my songs so you couldn't copy. And then... I had a system of using too many words when I sang, even though I rectified that later, so that you couldn't copy because people were copying stuff when they heard it. And I didn't know anything. I wasn't a lawyer. So that's how I developed my style. And then I found out that anything I sang slow, I could do fast, right? And cha-cha was the key. Now you got to understand, Smokey Robinson was doing this and didn't even know. Some of his songs are by Mary Wells. They were cha-chas, and he had that beat, but it was just done in American style. So then when Joe Cuba comes out with Bang, Bang, and then um, Hector Rivera at the party or Johnny Colon with Boogaloo Boo, I said, whoa, I can do that. I said, that's just down my alley. So I grouped myself into the cha-cha mode, And I sang these songs the same way I would sing them in a ballad. And I found out that if I use melodic content in a slow song, I could touch you. And then you embellish that with words. And that's why a lot of my songs have lasted until today. I had so many stories about people getting married on my clock. And then when I sat down, I said, gee, I wrote that? I said, look at how my head was. I composed that song and those words, I said, every man should tell his wife that. Thank you, Lord, for the cloud you made for me. I know you put the cloud there for all of us to see that I'd have a home amongst the stars to cure all my ills and all of my scars. But I'm tired of living on a cloud alone. I need a girl to help build my happy home. I said, whoa, I'm gone. And i done that record in Cha-Cha, i done it slow. I done it in Mambo. But there's no song more recorded than Ordinary Guy because I did that in every tempo that you can imagine. I like to be known. I'm the ordinary guy. Muchacho ordinario. (laughs) So Boogaloo, let's
0: educate the masses once again. What's the recipe to Boogaloo?
1: Okay, this is what happened. When Ricardo Ray did it in his album with a lot of phrases or catchphrases like, looky, looky, or stuff like that. They took it from Chicago, from the R&B artists that were doing the first Boogaloo. Of course, they spelled it different. So the B-O-O-G-A-L-O-O, they put B-U. It was an offshoot, and it caught on in New York, right? Because Johnny Colon followed. You had Pete Rodriguez, who was tremendous. What I found out was I had a different neck because I used lyrics. A lot of them were just using cut phrases. That's probably why it didn't last. I was successful because of my stories, along with the beat and along that it was done in English and that I used the cha-cha mode to express this. So all the songs that I did, I found out the balance I could do in cha-cha and then vice versa. I could do the cha-chas in balance. And then I'm still doing it. And then I found out, why not connect them on a song? One follow the other, like I did with What Good Is A Castle? They just found out a tune of mine called The Drug Story, which I wrote back in the 70s. They refused to release it because they said, gee, you don't wanna be known by that, Joe. I said, no, I'm not saying anything bad. I'm showing what can happen to you if you use drugs. I'm not adhering to it. And of course, now it's gonna come out on ghetto records we're relaunching that old label that I started on Vinyl Me, Please. And we're excited to hear something that you did back in 1970. Now it's fresh and people are going to hear for the first time. And of course, the secret of that boogaloo is Latin soul. I knew in my mind that the word boogaloo is not going to last because it was bubblegum. Right? Anything that bubblegum seems to pass away. But I said, the terminology of soul It's never gonna go away. It's embedded in the the American pastime. And then Latin is also embedded. So I'm changing my style to Latin soul, even though people have used that term, but I kept it going. I think that's another reason why it lasts. If I would have been known just as Boogaloo Guy, I don't think it would have lasted. It wouldn't have had the impact that I've had to this day. But Latin soul covers me in a much greater picture. So I can stretch out and do all other kind of things. But if you limit me just to boogaloo, then that's all you think I can play. And actually, people don't know, during the boogaloo era, we didn't just play boogaloo, we played mambos, cha's, and I sang ballads. That's why we had a band base, you know, because you didn't know what to expect when you went to the dance floor. There was a lot of competition between Willie Colon, Johnny Colon, all of those artists. We all did the same thing. So that's the secret of the boogaloo. I mean, Smokey Robinson was doing it for years and didn't even know with Mary Wells' tunes and stuff like that. If you listen to the beat and try to dance, you can dance shout out to it. That was the secret, and that's how I learned. Hi, everybody. This is Joe Batan from El Barrio, and you're listening to Siempre Palante. So don't touch that dial. Because you really won't have your radio or TV
0: on. (laughs) So before Gypsy Woman, you were trying to get an album recorded. And there were some challenges that you met. Can you share a little bit about that leading up to that?
1: I had the band and we were playing all over the circuit by a guy named Federico Pagani. And we would play this song in the clubs and people would get up and dance. We had no record. We were like opening acts for everybody. So a lot of people wanted the song and I just refused to sing it with them. I was trying to get a recording deal and I called George Golner who had Coteet Records and he came down and heard the band and he said, Great, I want the band. He said, but get another singer. So I looked at him. I was a poor, I said, what? He says, you don't want to sing. You're the band leader. I somebody that screams like James Brown. And I looked at him. And of course, at that time, you know, I was very belligerent. Guy. I said, man, no way. Right. I said, forget it. So he walked out. He said, OK, I know what I'm doing. I've been very successful. I said, yeah, yeah. All right. Bye. So then I went up to different labels. And they all were trying to entice me to sign a contract. Of course, little did I know I wasn't an attorney. But I knew that something wasn't right asking me to sign so what i did was i signed with everybody right and the thing is i signed and i knew that it wasn't legal because i was underage or or something to the effect that wasn't my name and one day i was in roulette records with notorious morris levy and he said okay everybody brought you here from me what do you want kid I said, well, I want to record, but, you know, everybody's giving me a hard time. This disc jockey said he won't play my records if I don't sign. This guy said this. He said, look, man, just tell me what you want, right? Get that creep on the phone. He calls up the disc jockey. He says, hey, you work for me, brother. Now, what are you talking about this kid you won't play his records? Oh, give me a chance to explain. He said, I was playing nothing. He hangs up the phone. It's impressing me in the office, right? He said, okay, kid, they're going to play your record. What else you want? said, well, I want to get paid. He said, we don't pay anybody. <laughs> What's your budget? So I didn't know what the heck budget meant back then. And I said, well, you know, I want this. Then another guy walks in, and uh, George he says, hey, I got this kid on the contract. He said, hey, kid, what are you doing, man? This guy says he got your ass. said, yeah, but you don't understand. He was trying to crook me. And that's why I signed. He said, well, you're a wise guy, right? And then another guy walks in. He says, I got him on the contract. He said wait a minute what are you trying to do youngster i said you come in here and then you signing with everybody he said because all of these guys are trying to manipulate me right and that's the only thing i knew to do he said well look we're not going to do anything with you get down out of here so he threw me out and i went that was a turning point in my life because <clears throat> i walked down the street and i said damn i really fogged it up now. now i ain't got nobody so i walked down and I got a call from a Dick Ricardo Sugar Discount. He said, I heard what happened. He said, but I got a guy that's just starting a label that might be interested in you and Joe. He's going to come and see you play at the Burik Theater. I said, okay, who's his name? He said, Jerry Masucci. And then what happened was, he said, I like the band. He said, what do you want? I said, I want to get paid. He said, okay. I was shocked he was going to pay me, right? I said, when he said next week? And the rest was history. We went into that studio that day. And I think I recorded the whole album in one day. And I sang at the piano. We looked at everybody. He said, how are you doing? You got your music? I said, no, they got to look at me. And I give them the directions while I'm at the piano. He said, well, don't you want to overdub?" I said, no, no. I sit here at the piano and I sing like that. He said, you're going to sing like that live? I said, yeah, because they got to see me. You know, we don't have no music. And I guess Johnny Pacheco was really shocked. He was holding his head and he called up Jerry just, I don't know, these kids played the song and they finished. He said, What? He says, Yeah, it's unheard of. I I never heard this before. Like these kid, we had to rehearse, we had it down. And the rest was history. Once they played that on the radio, all the kids had dimes and we were gonna request our own songs. We fall so much that. The disc jockey got on the radio. said, look, tell Joe Batten and all his friends don't call no more. This song is a, song, it's a hit. He don't even have to call. And the rest was history. <laughs> history Woman blew up.
0: You recorded 24-7 after that. From 67 to 75, you went on a tear. 10 albums in that time frame. You didn't drop an album in that time frame twice in two years of 71, 74. But in 68, 69, and 72, those were two albums in each of those years. Six albums in three years. I tell the listeners, do the math. Fast forward, I'm like, all right, he's on this tear. He's going. You're loving what you're doing. Live at the Red Garden, If This World Were Mine, you and Lala, man, that song is powerful. Powerful. I noticed there was a little composer lyricist on the credit. A guy by the name people might know him, Marvin Gaye. Oh, yeah, that was just song. <laughs> 72-something came out that was very powerful. It's called Sweet Soul and St. Latin's Day Massacre. So you're still on that tear. But then Our Latin Thing comes out. I want to know from Joe Batan, why the heck was there an absence of Joe Batan on Our Latin Thing? Because
1: that, to me, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it didn't. What happened was when I was called into the office, I was at the top of my game practically at that time. He said, we're going to do a movie. I said, yeah. He said, and everybody's agreed to be in the movie. And so I said, yeah, well, how much am I going to get paid? You know? He said, oh, no, they're all volunteering. I said, I'm not volunteering. He said, what do you mean? It's a great chance for you. I said, I've been volunteering all my life. I said, I think we should get paid something. Oh, no, but well, that's, that's what I'm not going to do it. So I guess they thought I was going to bluff out and do it. Everybody tried to convince me. But I stuck to my guns and I didn't do it. And that's the real reason. Because that question is asked a lot. There's no reason why Joe Battan wasn't in there. Right? I'm sure he made a mistake. But nevertheless, we don't know. Maybe because things were going to be in my favor. I know down the road, a lot of people think that Yankee Stadium was the first major concert. No. They took my idea. I did Shea Stadium three or four months before that. The only thing is that it rained like cats and dogs. And I got 15,000 people where he got Yankee Stadium and he got 40,000. It was my dream to make enough capital there to start a Latin Motown record company. It didn't happen. It happened later on with South Soul. But of course, the journey wasn't set. You know, I had to go through a couple of things. That's the real reason. Why I wasn't on that movie. 1979,
0: Rap Clapo. This was the first rap record before Rappers Delight. Now, a lot of people hear Rappers Delight, but when you do your homework, ladies and gentlemen, Rap O'Clappo was technically the first rap record. What made you gravitate to that sound?
1: Well, I was out of work, it was a down period in my life. I had not been with Fania and I had left South Soul. And I went into the center and I saw these kids, a thousand kids dancing. And I said, gee, where the heck these kids came from? What are they doing? Because I used to run the center. They said, oh, they're over here playing records and they come. I said, well, what do you call that? They said, they don't know. I said, wow. Then I got a brainstorm. I said, wait a minute. Is this on records? They said, no. And I said, whoa. Forget it, I gotta get into a studio right away. This is a national phenomenon. It's just a question of time before it catches on. So I had no money. I called up RCA Records, they knew me from my past deal, And they said, sure Joe, we'll give you time. I got the studio, I got the musicians. I told them to put the song together. I was gonna get Jekyll and Hyde to sing the song. They were the ones that I saw do. They thought they were going to play Bomba and Joe Vatan. They didn't know who the heck I was. You know, they were younger generation. They "Hey, hell with that guy. We ain't going over there. So here I was stuck with a bill, the musicians, the music, and nobody to perform. And then when I sat there, I think I am almost 40 years old, and I said, I could do this. I said, it's a new thing. i gonna make a shot. That rhythm got going. And the kids started dancing side to side in the studio. And I said, play the tape. And I sang it. Yeah. And then when I looked at everybody, these were teenagers. I was 40 years old. I mean, i was looking at 16, 17, and they were dancing. And I said, whoa, maybe I got something here. And I said, I pulled this off, and then I added certain lyrics, and then I changed the name. I called it Rap Clap, because that's what I saw in the dance floor. And I said, let me put an O at the end. And that became a novelty. And then I went around with the record. One studio heard it. And they said, Joe, what is that? I said, Well, you know, something new. He says, Man, get out of here with that. D-. He said, You don't sing anymore? I said, No, but this is something different. Ah, get out of here. Take that d- out of here. And I kept getting turned down. And then one studio, there was a guy, I don't know if you did your history, a young kid that was playing records and sort of was an advisor to the label, played the song and he started jumping up and down. His name was Larry Levan. He was the DJ for The Garage, the premier disco in the United States. And anything he played was gold. He said, give me that record, give me that record. I said, "No, oh, I don't know, you're gonna, young kid gonna tell me about my music, you ain't gonna get no record. But then I went back to South Soul I made amends with them and he said, I can't give you any money, Joe, but I'll give you a dollar for exchange And I'll release it right away on RCA Records. So I said, well, look, man, they're going to beat me out. Sugar Hell Gang had just come out with it ahead of me. But I had it first. And I said, "Okay." And he released it. I beat them in Europe. I was the first rap artist in Europe. And of course, it's history. I never got back home till six months later. That song went around the world. RCA Made me travel promoting that song. I had never done that before. And it didn't make any money. But they said, just wait, Joe. You'll see the residuals come in. And I didn't really realize at that time that the residuals are like seven to one compared to the United States. That was the beginning. It was a whole new genre. And what it did for me is that all those people that bought Rappo Clappo started to research Joe Battan. And they said, wow, this guy's been around. We never heard of him. And they started buying my old stuff. And then they gave me another life. So around the world, I'm known by different songs. If you go to Japan, it's Afro-Filipino, Joe Batan. If you go to England, it's Ordinary Guy. California, it's Mike Cloud. In Colombia, it's El Avion, The Riot. They changed the name. I mean, you can go and I get requests all over for different songs. Or so sometimes... I have to rehearse and then i got to brainstorm. Write all your music down. And I travel with my wife, she's in the band now. So this way she can keep an eye on me. (laughs) I have bands, the bands have caught up to the music all over the world. So you have great musicians around the world that interpret my music. So when I go to Japan, I call one guy up and I got the Tokyo All-Stars with me. I go to California, I got a Rasa backing me up. I've been mean, in Australia, I had the bamboos. I've done so much traveling in the last 20 years that it could never compare to my early beginnings. And then my fan base keeps growing because people can't believe that they never heard of me before. So I, every day I'm getting new fans. And the one thing about Joe Bittan is that once you hear my music and if you're caught you become a fan for life. You want to know what I'm doing. And then you pass it on to your neighbor or to your friends. So Joe Bertan is not Elton John. I'm not the Beatles. I'm underground, right? And God has blessed me that way because my audience is a select audience. People that know my story and that really can understand my music because a racker that racks records said, where do you put Joe Batan's reggae? Joe, in the Latin section. He said, no. He said, okay, in the R&B side. He said, no. You put it in the middle, world music, because everybody can get a chance to hear Joe Batan.
0: <laughs> to take this conversation to the pinnacle, because the pinnacle is about legacy. You mentioned these three words that really have impacted me in some of your interviews, grace, mercy, and peace. <laughs> yes. What do those words mean to you? And how does that translate to your legacy?
1: Okay, well, it's a secret. I didn't really understand it at first because I didn't even understand the word grace. But grace is the only you can get it from the big boss. Once he has grace upon you, then you give mercy to somebody else, right? So that's the grace that he gave you that you pass on. And then peace, after all of that is finished with, you're tranquil. And that's the greatest feeling that you can have in life is to be peaceful and at peace with yourself. So those three ingredients, those three words work hand in hand, just like I worked with the kids as father about health, spirit and knowledge. Physically, that's of the world. Grace, mercy and peace is of the spirit. So once you understand the terminology, then you're getting closer to imparting goodness to the world because it's embedded in you. So you have no choice but to share it with somebody, you see? But if your heart is closed, it won't be revealed to you. You'll never get it. You have to open up your heart to receive that grace, mercy, and peace. And once you do that, it'll be a feeling that you've never experienced in your life.
0: Joe, there's a reason you continue to be blessed for so many years. You embody grace, mercy, and peace every day of your life. This is why people love you and your music so much. Gracias for being on my show. For all my listeners, kindly rate, review, follow, like, subscribe, and share. Five stars and a little love go a long way. You can listen via Anchor.fm, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Check the show notes to learn more about Joe Batan. A special Palante shout-out goes out to my team, guests, and listeners. Gracias for your support. Next week, our guest is an award-winning journalist, motivational speaker, best-selling author and founder of Go-Like, Mariana Atencio. Tune in and tell a friend. Hasta la próxima. balante.